So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're continuing in our series from the life of David. And I want to read these opening verses for us. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. So the Philistines assembled and came and camped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw that the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him, either in dreams, or by Urim, or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Find for me a woman who is a medium, so that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So this morning we're going to talk about one of the most difficult passages in Scripture, as it involves King Saul going to a medium and trafficking in the demonic world. It's a horrible turn of events, and it does not end well for King Saul. But let me just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning again for your amazing word. We thank you, God, for the revelation, the insight that you pour into it for us to study. We thank you that it's a two-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit. And we ask this morning that the word would just come and do its work in our hearts. We thank you and we commit our time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my message this morning is Looking for God uh, in the Wrong Places. And where we are in the book, in 1 Samuel, in our series here, is this transition period between Saul being rejected by God as king and David en route to being the new king. So during this time, we see how Saul greatly persecuted David, and he was constantly trying to kill him as the heir apparent. And part of the miracles of the stories that we've been studying and going through is not only how God protected David from the many attacks against him, but also how David showed great mercy and kindness to Saul, even though he was coming after his life. And despite having his life threatened, David refused to retaliate and King Saul when he had the chance twice to eliminate his own threat. Now, we saw how David could have ended Saul's life in chapter 24 as they ended up in the same cave together while the king was relieving himself. I mentioned last week how embarrassing and, uh, this situation was, but here they were in the cave together, David, Saul, and the troops. And although David's troops encouraged him to take out the king, David did not consent. Then in chapter 27, which is the chapter previous to the one we're going to look at today, David had a second opportunity to end the madness. Having scouted out King Saul's camp, daringly, David, under the cover of night, snuck right into the middle of the camp where Saul was sleeping and took his jar of water and the spear that was stuck in the ground by his head. He quickly scampers out of the camp, goes up to the peak opposite where Saul and his troops are, and he wakes them up by shouting at them, and he taunts Saul's bodyguards and says, why aren't you protecting the king? And then he shows the spoils of his raid, namely the jar and the spear. So we see in both cases that David showed himself to be more righteous than Saul. David was preserving Saul's life while Saul was trying to take his life. 
And this is where we find ourselves today in chapter 28, that King, that King Saul is increasingly declining in stature. His behavior is erratic. His persecution of David is so unrelenting and crazed that David actually forces himself to join the Philistines in order to hide from Saul. You can read about this whole episode in chapter 27. I won't go through that. But David embeds himself in the Philistines. Now just think about how crazy this was. It was David that killed Goliath who was of the Philistines. And here David then runs to the enemy's side in order to protect himself. Well, it worked because the Philistines were the one enemy that Saul feared more than any other. So as we read here in verse 3, this was a moment of crossing over in the nation of Israel because Samuel died. The great prophet had passed, the one in whom no words of his fell to the ground. He was the one that anointed and mentored Saul, and he also anointed David. And he was the one that transitioned Israel's governmental structure from judges to an era of the monarchy. He's a great father in the faith, a spiritual giant. He was now gone. And so, as if King Saul was not already in bad shape, Saul's passing only served to destabilize the king even more. Hence, when the Philistines came to attack Saul, he panicked, and as we read in verse 6, he inquired of the Lord by dreams and Urim and prophets. Saul wanted to know what should he do, and what would happen to him, what would be the outcome of the battle if he was going to go to war against the enemy. But tellingly, verse 6, the Bible says that God did not answer him. So Saul sought God's counsel by dreams. Now, typically back then, the Lord would frequently speak to kings through dreams, but there was no dreams. Saul sought the Lord by Urim. If you have not heard this term, it's a very specific term. It refers to two stones that was on the breastplate of the high priest, also called the ephod. And God would use these stones to speak direction and counsel to the nation. It was only reserved for the high priest to seek the Lord in this way. Well, of course, as we know, in the earlier chapters, Saul had wiped out all the priests, so there was no priest to wear the ephod. So there's no direction that he could receive through Urim and Thummim. And then it says here that Saul sought the Lord by the prophets, but God did not answer him either by the prophets. Well, of course not, because Samuel now is dead. So Saul is so desperate for a word from God, that he violates his own ban on mediums and spiritists. Mediums, or necromancers, are those who communicate with the dead. Spiritists are those who contact evil spirits. And the Lord strictly forbid any of these to be in the land. In Deuteronomy 18, God strictly told the people that there should not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter or who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omen or a sorcerer. There shall be no charmer or medium or necromancer who inquires of the dead, and whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. In Leviticus, God says the same thing. You shall not practice divination nor soothsaying, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. 
And God says this again in chapter 20. As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the prostitute, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among the people. So this was incredibly serious. But we find in this passage that despite these warnings, Saul actually goes and seeks one out. And so in this ghoulish scene, Saul goes with two of his men to meet the medium at Endor, which was a city nearby from where Saul was. And he asks her to conjure up Samuel. So the exact reading from the scripture, verse 11, the medium asked to Saul, whom shall I bring up? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said, Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So she knew that there was a ban on mediums and spiritists. She wanted, didn't want to be arrested. She maybe thought that this was a sting operation. And Saul had gone under the cover of night. He had disguised himself. And so all of a sudden, as she sees Samuel's coming up, she realized this is the king that's asking me to do this. Verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming out, up out of the earth. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. So this description of Samuel with his robe just shook Saul. Because if you remember back in chapter 15, when Samuel first rendered judgment against Saul, Saul tore the robe of Samuel. And so now this robe was appearing before him. And that very strong memory flashes back to him. As if all this is not weird enough, it goes on. And it happens that Samuel and Saul have a conversation. So Samuel says to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. This is a crazy scene. The medium calls up Samuel. Saul sees Samuel. He's devastated when he sees him. The king falls to the ground. And then they have this conversation where Saul is talking to the prophet Samuel, who is dead. I hope there are many questions that are swirling around in your mind at this point, as in what in the world is going on. Can this be happening? Can a medium call up the dead? And even if she or he can, can they call up righteous people like the prophet Samuel? Okay, we might say that if you're going to be operating in, in the dark realm, you can call up people who don't know the Lord, but can a medium call up someone that knows God? 
Do they have such powers? And did the person that Saul in the medium saw, see, was that really Samuel or was it an apparition? Was it actually him? Now, if Samuel was saved, why did he come up from the earth instead of coming down from heaven? Now, what Samuel prophesied to Saul was true, as in Saul was going to die at the hands of the Philistines the next day in battle. But was it the real Samuel that prophesied, or was it a familiar spirit? Can evil spirits know the future? These are all very thorny and difficult questions. Unfortunately, we don't have time to examine them all. But generally speaking, theologians fall into two camps when interpreting this passage. Number one, this was a real appearance from Samuel, or number two, this was not a real appearance, but a counterfeit one impersonated by an evil spirit. My response to all this is that the question isn't whether this kind of demonic activity can happen. We just read in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 19 and 20 that it can So the question isn't that this kind of stuff can happen, but that we're to never avail ourselves to these things, like fortune-telling, like palm reading, like tarot cards, necromancers, Ouija boards, and all the variations, crystals, new age objects. God was very clear that to consult with mediums or practice divination is a sin and an abomination, and it invites judgment from God. So the Bible doesn't deny that there's this darkness and that its powers aren't real, but instead it tells us to avoid it at all costs. So given that, I believe the natural of this passage, the natural reading of this passage shows that it was Samuel himself that appeared and that he, not an evil spirit, prophesied to Saul of his impending death. One commentator put it that God broke into the seance. This was obviously conjured up, it was motivated, it was operating through an evil spirit, but in the middle of this thing, God breaks into this seance, God interrupts what's going on. And so Samuel is there, and he speaks the word of the Lord to the king. But here's the larger point behind this dreadful event. God had already given Saul his answer. God's no answer was his answer. I'm not telling you anything. I'm not revealing anything to you. That is my answer. Hold your peace. Saul did not need to know anything more, but Saul's flesh insisted. So he went looking for God in the wrong place. This was insanity. Saul was out of his mind to do this. He literally looked to Satan when God wouldn't tell him what he wanted. This is sheer rebellion self-will, independence, and sinfulness that's acting out. Again, Leviticus 20 says, As for the person who turns to medium and to spiritist, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among the people. And this is exactly what happened to Saul. The official ending reads like this. It came about on the next day. This is from chapter 31. When the Philistines came to strip those killed, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So the battle between Israel and the Philistines raged. And there was this strong, heavy casualty that 
resulted from the battle. And as the Philistines came upon Mount Gilboa, they found that Saul and his three sons had fallen. And verse 9 says, they cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land to bring the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. The Philistines cut off Saul's head, decapitated him, and stripped him of his weapons. Saul died a gruesome, dishonorable death. He literally lost his mind. His head was separated from his neck, and he was left without any defenses. He'd given himself over to darkness. 32 years previous, he heard the roar of the people saying, Long live the king. This was a new era. The people had been crying out for a monarchy, and now it was given to them. And they were so excited. And the multitudes were shouting, Long live the king. He was installed at the age of 40 years old. Then 32 years later, we find this tragic scene where he's on the mountain. He's defeated by the Philistines. And not only that, but he is decapitated without his head as he sold himself out to the devil. The Bible certainly does not gloss over the details. It's tragic. But here's the thing. Here's what's even more tragic. It didn't have to end this way. The same resources that made David such a great man were available to Saul. God had intended that Saul's kingdom would last forever. This is what's told to us in 13.13, chapter 13, verse 13. Saul's testimony could have, been, could have been David's testimony. Saul could have been a man after God's heart and not just David. David was a man of the fields, raising sheep. Saul was also a man of the fields, raising donkeys. They were both immersed by trade in God's wondrous creation and revelation. Like I referred to last Sunday from Psalm 19, how the revelation was pouring forth as David was in the fields. Saul had the same opportunity. He too was in the fields. He too, he too could have heard God's voice through all of that. Saul had the same access to the Torah as David did, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he could have delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it day and night, just like David wrote in Psalm 1. Instead of the Psalms of David, it could have been the Psalms of Saul. Instead of David penning 119, Psalm 119, where he exalts over the law of the Lord. It could have been Saul who wrote that. Saul had the same access to the ark that David did. Saul knew that the ark was in a city called Kiriath-Jerim, and that was only 10 kilometers from his home. He was closer to the ark than David was, who came from Bethlehem. Yet Saul did not bring up the ark to his royal city, or choose to pitch a tent for it. Instead of the tabernacle of David, it could have been the tabernacle of Saul. Saul knew the presence of God and the power of prophecy, which is what David is so well known for. When Saul was coronated, the Bible says that as he was approaching this group of prophets, they were coming down from the high place with harps, tambourines, flute, lyra, before them prophesying. And parenthetically, this is why we place such an emphasis on worship and the presence of God, because God inhabits the praises of his people, because God uses worship to break the anointing, because God moves in power. 
And so Saul, as he was approaching this company of the prophets, and they were skilled in their instruments, bringing forth the anointing. It says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he was turned into another man. The presence of God transforms us. It turns us into different people, moving us from glory to glory. Saul knew all of that. He could have been a great man of worship like David. In written Psalm 27, 4, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Saul could have relished God the way that David did, to inquire in his temple and to see the beauty of this great Jehovah, that he was selected to be the first king. And yet Saul did not relish any of this. And David did not have a corner on all of this. It's not like God said, okay, this is exclusively yours, David. This is how I'm going to equip you. But Saul never availed himself of all these riches. Instead, he looked for God in the wrong places. I think the story speaks to us with some force and clarity and relevance. Does it not shine a light on the fact that we too can be a people looking for God in the wrong places? We're looking for happiness and contentment and peace in the wrong places. We're looking for fulfillment and comfort in the wrong places. Our culture has gone crazy trying to be cool and famous. We are a Kardashian, housewives of Atlanta, bachelorette, profanity-laced, alcohol-fueled, sensuality-stimulated, social media-addicted, money-obsessed world. In the midst of all that, where is the right place to look for God? Actually, the question is not about place, it's about the heart. Because God can meet us wherever we are, wherever we go, whatever situation we find ourselves in. We can go to the most spiritually conducive place and not be touched by God. We can go to church, we can go to Bible study, we can go to Christian camp, we can go to a Christian university, a Christian school, we can be raised in a Christian family and not be touched by God. We can even go to seminary, the height of learning about God, and not be moved by Him. If our heart is not in the right place, if it's hard and closed, nothing will be able to get in, not even God. Now, in saying that, I'm not canceling the omnipotence of God. I'm just saying that God will never force his way in because he always honors our choice. But if our heart is open, if it's soft, if it's humble, if it's tender, God can meet us anywhere, anytime. I mean, we might be stuck up in a tree and God will meet us like Zacchaeus. We might be down in the dirt and then God picks us up like the woman caught in adultery. We might be dead broke and longing to eat the food of swine and God welcomes us home. We might be at a funeral and God breaks in on our grief like the widow at Nain. We, may, we might be on a mission to tear down Christians. You might hate Christians. You might deplore and just actually be abhorrent about their hypocrisy. Maybe you've had bad experiences with church or with a pastor or some Christian ministry and you're on a mission to tear down Christianity and yet God shows up and turns you around 
like he did with the Apostle Paul. We might be on the roadside begging, and God turns aside to see what's up, like blind Bartimaeus. We might be in the military doing our tour of duty, and God comes to us like Cornelius in Acts 10. We might even be into the black arts and the demonic world, and God overwhelms us like Simon the sorcerer. Isaiah 66.1 says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Since God owns everything, it means everywhere can be the right place to meet God. Psalm 51, David says, A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Psalm 145, He sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. And the Apostle Peter says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Where is your heart at this morning, dear one? Do a heart check. Are you hard? Are you cynical? Are you filled with unbelief? Are you filled with suspicion? Are you filled with, I don't care. What is filling your heart? Scripture is clear that the condition of our heart is a matter of life and death. It changes what we do in the present, and it changes our future. And so it's not about the place, it's about our heart. In John chapter 4, there's this famous story of the woman at the well. I want to end with this story. And this woman thought that finding God was about the right place. As Jesus is talking to her, she realizes that he's a prophet. Right? We remember the story. Jesus is thirsty. He wants to rest. And all of a sudden, the Spirit quickens him that there's a woman there that she should talk to. And as the woman brings water to him, and as they have this discussion going on, the Lord gives her these words of knowledge about her life, that she's had five husbands, and she's absolutely blown away. And she's a Samaritan. And Jews don't speak to Samaritans, let alone a rabbi speaking to a woman of very low stature. But when God says to her, you've had five husbands, all of a sudden, it's like, wow. She says to Jesus, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and people say that in Jerusalem is where men ought to worship. In other words, she's saying, how can this be happening? We're not in a synagogue. We're not in Jerusalem. We can't be having a spiritual conversation like this. We need to be in a holy spot. And Jesus said, no, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, you don't have to be in a spiritual retreat. You don't have to create a mountaintop experience. You don't have to be in a holy city. You don't have to think that Christianity is like Mecca where you have to go to a specific location. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So Jesus was saying to her, it's not about the place. It's about your heart. Whenever the heart is ready, I'm ready to meet you. It's not about finding God in the right place. It's about God finding you in the right place. And when that happens, God will move heaven and earth. Even when Jesus was tired and thirsty and hungry, he broke into this woman's life. Saul's life ended with the medium feeding the king his last meal. 
So we didn't read this part of the story, but what happens is that Saul is so devastated by this whole encounter. Number one, that the medium conjured up Samuel, and then that he has this conversation with Samuel, and then Samuel says, you're going to die tomorrow, that he just goes white. He goes ashen. All the energy goes out of him. He doesn't want to eat. And now the medium is panicking. She's thinking, oh my God, what if, what if he stays there for another day or something? What if he faints or he needs some kind of medical attention? They find the king here with me. I'm going to be done with. And so she hurriedly prepares this meal for him. And Saul's last meal was given to him by this medium. But in John 4.4, we have the king of kings, Jesus himself, serving the woman her first meal of the kingdom salvation, and it would be the first of many meals to come. Saul met his demise, but she met her beginning. You couldn't have more different endings than that. And so Jesus went out of his way to talk to the Samaritan woman because he saw her heart. Why did Saul go out of his way to seek the medium? Because of his heart. Because it was cold and it was dark and it was dead. Where is your heart today? Are you open? Are you ready? If you are, God is ready to meet you and help you. You know, I hear in the spirit a lot of silent cries across our city. They're not open cries. You can't hear them, but they're there. I'm hurting. I'm lonely. I'm sad. I'm depressed. I feel insignificant. I don't know where my life is going. There is silent cries happening throughout the city. And no one can hear them, but God can. And God says, you don't have to go here or there or assume a right position. All you have to do is to open your heart and I will come to you. He's ready to meet you just like he did with the woman at the well. She thought that she found God in the wrong place, but it was God finding her in the right place. So we thank you, God, for your tenderness and your care towards us. We are devastated to read what happened to Saul, but we're encouraged, God, that there's a different path that we can take. And this morning, if you've been one of those people that have been crying out, You've been part of those that have been crying out in a silent way, wondering if anyone hears. I want to tell you that God hears. And he is here for you right now. And if the door of your heart is cracked open and you're thinking, could this be true? Jesus, I do want you to come and to heal me, to touch me, that I invite you to invite Jesus into your life and say, Lord, Take over. Comfort me. Speak to me. I surrender my life to you so that I can follow after you. And maybe you're someone that's followed the Lord for many years and you know all the the right things to say and all the right things to do, but in your heart of hearts, you just feel God is far away. Then today today is the day to just say, God, thank you that as I just turn towards you, you will meet me. So Holy Spirit, just come right now. Come right now 
in our rooms, in our living rooms, in our study, in our homes. You offer the woman that living water by which she would never thirst again, and you're offering it to us right now. So we thank you for that. We partake of it, and we bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that Rich talked about today was just the matter of the heart. Where is your heart? As we see in the story that was told, and the, the, the story that was told is, is not a matter of whether this happens or it doesn't, whether mediums exist or mediums don't exist, whether, whether, whether the, the, this other side of spirituality exists or not. That's not the point of what this story is about. The reality is that there is a very, very dark spiritual realm that is there. Whether you choose to accept that or not, the reality is that that realm is there. But what this story addresses is not really addressing, oh, look, this exists. But it's addressing that where do we place and where do we, where do we have our heart? What is, where, what is our heart in, the, in a place of seeking after God? You see, with Saul, Saul was a man that God chose. It wasn't the fact that it wasn't one of those things where Saul was straying away from God his whole life. It was, Saul was one of those guys that, that knew the Lord. He had, a, he, had a, he had a great start in his kingdom. But as time went on, pride took over Saul. And Saul, instead of seeking after God for answers, he started to try to figure things out for himself. In many ways, it's, it's an idolatry of our, our, our own desires. It's an idolatry of this is what I want to do, and therefore I'm going to seek whatever it takes for me to, 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 to gain what I desire. It's going above God. It's going beyond God and saying, well, I don't think that what you have planned for me is what's best for my life. And when we get to that place, God allows us to be destroyed by the desires of our own will and the desires of our own sins. Does God want that for us? No, he doesn't. God wants us to come to him. God wants us to, to worship him. God wants us to have that relationship with him. God wants us to build a life with him, the life that he's ordained for us. But God also gives us a choice. God also gives us a choice in deciding the way that we live. And as we look at this story, as we look at how the end of Saul comes, Saul continuously chooses to live and to make decisions according to his, his own will and his own way. That he will step outside of what God has has told him, and these are your guidelines. He, he decides, like, I'm going to step outside of that because I need to know the answers for myself. So it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of where do you place your heart? Do you place it into your own hands or do you place it in the hands of God? Do you look towards Jesus and what he did on the cross for you and say, I am yours and you are mine? 
Or do you think that I know better in a situation, in the situation that I, I'm in? And therefore, I will do what it needs to be done in order to get what I need. Jesus speaks to you and is calling out to you. Jesus made that first step first to, to, to come and reach out his hands and say, I want to help you. I want to be with you. I want to have this relationship with you. So we as a church, we get to choose. Do we want to live that life with Jesus or do we want to live that life by ourselves? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for this story. Although how it, it, it seems like an obscure story in many ways, but at, at the same time, Lord, it highlights just the position that we often put ourselves in. A position where we are seeking after life for ourselves and not seeking after life with you. So, Father God, we come first in repentance to turn back towards who you are. And we just ask for you to speak clearly to our hearts. So, Lord, we love, we love you for all that you are. We give you all our praise and all our blessing. We ask for you, you to send your spirit to speak into the depths of our heart, into those dark places. And we ask for light to come into those places. We ask for your life to come into those places. And Lord, we, we trust you with all that we are. We love you. We thank you. We give all our praise to you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed. We'll see you guys next week.